So last week we talked a little bit about how a prehistoric predator called tuberculosis has impacted history. Today, we're going to learn how that tuberculosis bacteria is so effective at attacking humans and the controversial vaccine that we use to fight against TB today. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. I, as always, am your host, Dr. K. Thank you so much for tuning in again for uh, episode 33 of the podcast. If this is your first time, or if you have not already, don't forget to hit that follow button wherever podcasts are distributed. And if you leave a five-star review, you get extra bonus points. So jump on that five-star review team for extra bonus points. Um, We also have an Instagram page at Science with Dr. K, where you can keep up to date with the show and other science. So feel free to give us a follow there as well. Now, last week, we did something a little different on the podcast. We spent spent some time diving into uh, the history of one of the most famous and the most deadly of pathogens, um, a bacteria called Mycobacterium tuberculosis. we talked about how Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the causative agent within the disease tuberculosis, we talked about how tuberculosis has stuck with humanity since we first showed up on the evolutionary scene, and that over millennia, a number of different scientists put together a bunch of, a bunch of disparate parts of information in order to synthesize an idea of not only how TB worked, but how to combat it from a therapeutic perspective. We wrapped up last episode with a dramatic moment within the history of medicine where Robert Koch isolated and identified mycobacterium tuberculosis. And he did so by isolating this bacteria from these so-called tubercles, these little lesions that are found in the lungs of victims. We touched briefly on how Koch's discovery led to the development of a bunch of different types of therapies and diagnostics um, for tuberculosis, including the BCG vaccine, which is the at, at this point the only currently approved vaccine for TB. What you might not know about the BCG vaccine is that the BCG vaccine is not used in places like the United States, and it's not part of the typical schedule of vaccines that people take within within these United States. Now, that leads to a number of really interesting questions, actually, that we can ask about BCG. What is the BCG vaccine? How does it work? What is What is the history of the BCG vaccine? Why is it that it isn't used in places like the U.S., but it is used in places like Europe? Uh, We're going to touch on each of these questions and try and synthesize them into a coherent episode for your listening pleasure. But in order to understand a little bit more about the BCG vaccine, we need to know a little bit more about how... Um, about how pathogenic mycobacteria such as tuberculosis cause their disease. How do they cause pathogenesis? And this is actually a really, really cool bit of information, that, and it is something that I spent a decent chunk of my life uh, working on in graduate school. So how does TB work? How do pathogenic mycobacteria work? Well, tuberculosis specifically, which you may have gleaned from the last episode, primarily works by targeting the lungs of the victims. It starts off in the lungs of the infected, and it forms those tubercles that we mentioned last week. From there, it starts traveling throughout the body. Eventually, it becomes totally systemic in the body. But in those initial moments, it starts off in the lungs. Okay? 
So that means that if the body wants to stop TB, it has to target the TB in the lungs, at least at the beginning phases before the bacteria becomes completely systemic. So how does the body deal with this? Well, the first line of defense against TB in the lungs takes the form of white blood cells called alveolar macrophages. So alveolar because they're found in the alveoli um, of the lungs and they're macrophages, which are just a type of white blood cell. These little guys, um, what they'll do is they'll grab a hold of tuberculosis and honestly any type of bacteria that doesn't really belong. And then it'll place those bacteria in a tiny little organelle within themselves called the phagosome. So what is the phagosome? The phagosome, it's a... Um, uh, it's a common weapon used by macrophages, and it's like you can think about it like a little bag of death molecules. And it's a it's got a bunch of little death molecules and enzymes, and what those do is those degrade bacteria. So what normally will happen is the white blood cell will grab the bacteria, pick it up, put it in its little phagosome, shake around the phagosome, and then that is usually enough to kill the bacteria. Okay? So that means that as a bacteria, if they want to survive in those instances... They have to figure out a way to either withstand the phagosome or escape the phagosome. Okay, so how does it go about doing this? How does tuberculosis go about doing this? Well, as is often the case, when bacteria get put into a tight spot, what they'll do is they'll develop complex machines that can do complex tasks as a way of contending with their environment. Okay, we talked uh, a long time ago about a protein machine that is used to transfer DNA from one bacteria to another bacteria. Um, but protein machines, they don't always have to be quite so peaceful as that. Bacteria oftentimes will have extraordinarily warlike protein machines, um, and tuberculosis is no exception. Tuberculosis protein machines consist of, or at least the one that we're talking about today, it consists of a bunch of individual little proteins, kind of like Legos, that are stuck together in a shape kind of like a little gun or a cannon-shaped object. This little gun grabs a hold of these little protein bullets that TB also makes, and then it shoots those little protein bullets into the membrane of the phagosome. In that way, TB can poke holes, also called permeabilize, it can poke holes the phagosomal membrane, and then it can escape the phagosome. It can escape that little bag of death molecules. Once it does so, once it has access to the rest of the macrophage, it can just kill the macrophage at its, at its leisure. And it does this, the way it does this, it doesn't really matter for this episode, but suffice it to say that it uses a couple of other protein machines to finally kill the bacteria. And after that, it can just move on to the next white blood cell, to the next macrophage. Now, what I hope you guys can pick up on here is that this protein machine that gets TB out of the phagosome is really, really important. It allows the bacteria to escape. It furthers tuberculosis pathogenesis. And in fact, and this is important, it's even associated with triggering the immune system further, okay, for withdrawing more white blood cells to its location, okay? What that also means is that if you want to stop TB, if you want to shut it down, it will be really, really smart to try and target that machine. This machine, uh, just to put a name to it, is called the ESX1 secretion system, but we're just going to call it ESX1 for today. It's a really potent protein-based weapon system that is required for tuberculosis to be a super effective pathogen. What's even cooler is if you break ESX1, if you tear it apart in any way, then TB stays stuck in the phagosome and it just dies. So a lot of folks within the scientific community 
are having a good, long, hard look at ESX1 as a way of figuring out how to stop tuberculosis, asking this fundamentally sound question, is it possible to turn the gun off in TB? Okay? So what, what I want to do now is let's, let's bracket that for a little bit. Just keep that in mind. And now we're going to shift topics to the BCG vaccine. What is the BCG vaccine? Why all the confusion and seemingly conflicting perspectives around the BCG vaccine? And this is actually a really interesting topic, um, and it requires looking back again into the annals of history. So let's go back there. Okay, so the BCG vaccine first originated uh, around the start of the 20th century. So it was very soon after Robert Koch first purified and isolated MTB. Um, it came about due to the research of a scientist named Albert Calmet and a veterinarian named Camille Guerin. Um, so these guys, they were fiddling around with tubercle bacteria and found that when they grew this bacteria on a combination of glycerin and potato medium, and then they hit it with a dose of ox bile, it sounds like alchemy, a little bit of glycerin and potato, and then a, a pinch of ox bile, if you continued growing bacteria on that media, eventually you would end up with a slightly less virulent form of the organism. Now, just as a reminder to reorient ourselves to how vaccines typically work, when people design vaccines, oftentimes what they'll do is they'll use a piece of the virus or bacteria, that's how some of the COVID vaccines were designed, or they'll use a non-virulent version called an attenuated version of a virus or a bacteria. And this would be in the case of, of some types of the flu vaccine or in, so kind of like how smallpox came about. So when the researchers saw that they had inadvertently created a version of, tubercul of tuberculous bacteria that was less virulent, it occurred to them they could possibly make a vaccine-worthy strain that could contend with tuberculosis, that would give a good immune response to, tuber to tuberculosis. Excuse me. So as a result, in 1908, the two of them started trying to put together their research into something that would actually work and, and give a functional vaccine for TB. Um, not wanting to work with M. tuberculosis, I'm guessing, they used a different version of mycobacteria called M. bovis, Mycobacterium bovis. M. bovis uh, is like MTB, and it can cause tuberculous symptoms in humans, but they primarily cause infections in things like bovines, in cows, or cervids, like elk or deer, stuff like this. About 2%, this is just another thing to be aware of, about 2% of tuberculosis cases every year are caused by M. bovis, and that's typically when folks are eating or drinking contaminated, oftentimes unpasteurized dairy products. Um, it can also, of course, come from inhaling the bacteria like a normal TB, but the primary link is through some kind of interaction with an infected bovine. In, in any event, working with this strain of mycobacteria, they continuously grew it on this culture of bile, glycerin, and potato. They just continually grew that strain on this nice, happy medium, growing the bacteria, growing the bacteria. Every so often, they would have to take a bit of that bacteria, bacterial growth and put it on a new plate of the bile, glycerin, potato to keep that strain of bacteria alive. But other than that, that one strain of bacteria just continuously grew and grew and grew. Now, what is neat about bacteria, again, is their ability to evolve really rapidly. They don't have a whole lot of time for nonsense bacteria. Um, and if there's part of their genome that isn't really important, they don't necessarily want to keep it around. 
you know, it takes up space, it takes up energy. So as this strain continued to grow, a really, really cool thing happened. It started to lose some of the mechanisms in place that it required in order to infect humans. And this would include protein weapons like ESX-1. Now, that's happening on the on the plate right now. But meanwhile, 11 years after they started their experiment, about 230 subcultures of their M. bovis strain later, Calme and Guerin realized that they had a version of M. bovis that couldn't produce tuberculosis when it was injected into guinea pigs, rabbits, horses, and most importantly, cows. Recall that M. bovis in particular likes to infect cows, hence bovis. So, the fact that you could inject it into cows and not have any tuberculosis was absolutely huge. So this was super enheartening. So Calmay and Guerin, they named their vaccine the Bacy-Calmay-Guerin vaccine, or the BCG vaccine for short. Now, over the years, um, they started testing that vaccine with human trials. They inoculated over 100,000 kids over a four-year span without any serious complications from the children involved. In some... Uh, honestly, some somewhat suspect, to be perfectly frank, um, somewhat suspect statistics from Calmay and Guerin. Um, they suggested that there was a drop in TB deaths in the kids that had been vaccinated. But given the studies had some questionable validity, there were a lot of folks that were still pretty suspicious about the BCG vaccine. And this was further compounded by, honestly, one of the greatest disasters in the history of vaccine therapy, the so-called Lubeck disaster. So, what is the Lubeck disaster? So the Lubeck disaster references a vaccine in northern Germany where a doctor at the Lubeck Health Department, a series of medical laboratories, started injecting um, what they thought was the BCG vaccine into kids without really paying attention to the sterility of the strains. As a result of the 250 kids that were vaccinated, a third of the kids died and the vast majority of the remainder of kids got sick but recovered. No less than the German government at this point gets involved, and they start this investigation into the labs. About a year and a half after this, they find that the BCG vaccine at this lab specifically had been just riddled and contaminated by a totally unrelated form of tuberculosis, and that the doctor had just been injecting the kids with live TB. Now, although this investigation exonerated the BCG vaccine, Right? It wasn't the BCG vaccine that was causing t the tuberculosis. The trust in the medical community at that time was very rightly just absolutely shattered. Now, scientists at this time learned something really, really, really important, and that is the absolute need for sterility within labs. Right? It doesn't matter what happens, and this is still just as true then as it is now. Scientists need to have mechanisms in place to make sure that the entire lab and what comes out of it are, number one, absolutely, totally, and always sterile, and that they are always absolutely sure about the identity of the thing that is coming out of their lab and the thing that you are injecting, right? This is why not only does the U.S. government regulate labs that produce vaccines, but modern medicine in general takes sterility so seriously. That's why you're always using new loops. You're new, using new band-aids every single time. That sterility is super, super important within the medical community, and it's in part due to stuff like the Lubeck disaster. Things like modern genetics, they're also super helpful for this because you're able to sift through different strains from each other as a way of pinpointing exactly what it is that you're working with. Now, after the Lubeck disaster, 
only once the BCG vaccine was acquitted of all charges causing tuberculosis. The scientific community realized something pretty important, and that is that there needed to be some actual rigorous study regarding the vaccine before they recommended it to anybody else. And so as a result, in the 1950s, public health services in the UK and the United States did a bunch of different studies to see if they were actually safe and effective. Now, now, what happened afterwards was also really weird. So throughout that culturing of BCG, recall it went through a whole bunch of different subcultures. It turns out that there was some slight genetic variability within the strains as well. None of them caused TB, which is good, um, but some of them would help the immune system and some of them just kind of kind of did nothing. There was one strain in the UK that turned out to help a little bit in some cases, but the one in the US didn't really do anything to protect against TB. So... As a result, the UK recommends the BCG vaccine, but the US doesn't recommend using the BCG vaccine. And we've held those positions even to this day. If you're in the US, because of those initial studies and because we in the US are less likely to be exposed or contract TB due to modern hygienic practices and just our, our situation, the CDC doesn't recommend getting the BCG vaccine. And honestly, at the end of the day, the BCG, for all the effort that was put into it, um, all the good things that can come from the BCG, it doesn't really work super well when it comes to TB. There's the genetic component that we mentioned before. There's different some different strains that sometimes make it not help regardless. But overall, it doesn't really work to prevent TB in things like adults. Um, it works with kids, but it doesn't really work super well in adults. Adult TB in the lungs isn't really prevented by the BCG. So the BCG as a therapy for TB right? While it can help, while it's not totally useless, it isn't the silver bullet that we've been looking for. It isn't that thing that we can say, all right, we put TB behind us, right? It shouldn't be seen that way. It can help in some cases. And honestly, it's a really great therapy, not only for, um, not only for TB, but things like cancer somehow, which I don't have yet to understand the immunology behind that. Um, but if we're looking for something that we can say, all right, we put TB behind us, just saying the BCG vaccine, that, that isn't it. Now, the final question that we can ask is why? Why is it that the BCG doesn't really work as a good therapy for TB? Now, there's a bunch of different hypotheses about this. Um, and one of the big answers goes back to ESX1, that protein weapon system that we talked about earlier. If you zoom in on the genes in BCG, you'll notice a funny thing. The genes that make up the protein system ESX1 those blueprints that you need in order to get out of the phagosome, the blueprints you need in order to make the weapon system that allows you to get out of the phagosome, they're mysteriously missing from the BCG strains. And this is due to the fact that, well, I mean, since they were growing for so long on that fat and happy medium, they no longer used it. They no longer needed it. So they got rid of it. Now, Dr. K, you say, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't giving the BCG the weapon system back just make it virulent? Well, possibly. Yes, that is totally a, a that is totally a question you can ask. But remember that the ESX1 system, it's a trigger for the human immune system. So if you want the immune system to be on the lookout for TB, it might be worth it to have some form of the ESX1 system in there. In fact, there was a recent paper that found that if you give the BCG vaccine a weakened version of ESX1, it leads to a much stronger reaction from the immune system, and it's a more effective vaccine. So we're currently in this weird paradoxical state where we don't want a vaccine strain to cause virulence of any kind, but we also want something that can produce a good immune response. And that is a, that is a common 
um, pushing and pulling that happens within um, vaccine therapy. Now, at the end of the day, um, the BCG vaccine, what do we do with it? It is a continuing problem within the scientific community. Should we edit it? If so, how? Should we toss it out altogether? Should we try something new? These are all really good and relevant questions that should be answered, that will be answered by the scientific community as we progress. Um, but we'll just have to cover all those on another on another day and possibly another podcast. But let us recap from the top. Number one, tuberculosis pathogenesis relies on a protein weapon system as a way of escaping the immune system and killing white blood cells. Number two, the BCG vaccine is a useful medical tool with an albeit checkered past, but it doesn't work extraordinarily well at preventing TB in adults. So it's still, it's not, it's not the best answer. It's not, it's not going to put TB behind us. Let's put it that way. And number three, one hypothesized reason that it doesn't work all that well in adults is that during the development of the vaccine, M. bovis lost the protein machinery used to make it virulent, therefore, therefore reducing a specific immune response. Now, um, there's still tons of questions that we can ask now that relate to these weapon systems. I've, I find bacterial weapon systems to be so, so cool. TB has one. Are there other weapon systems in the bacterial world? And the answer to that is, of course, yes. And yep, we will be talking about those next time, so be sure to come back next week. Um, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you all enjoyed this deep dive into the history of TB and the primary therapies we have for it. We are definitely going to look into other diseases of antiquity, but for now, we have to head out. This is Dr. K, and I can't wait to see you all next time on another episode of Short Stories of Bacteria.